0: Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shibu Glani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm really happy to be joined by Tom Davidson, the founder and CEO of EverFi, which is a leading education technology company that drives social change through education. Since starting in 2008, EverFi has reached more than 43 million learners across K-12, higher education, and workplace environments. It recently announced a $100 million commitment to building and expanding K-12 courses to address the most important issues that are leading to economic inequality and social injustice. Before we get started, I'd like to thank Victor Hu at Lumos Capital for first introducing Tom and me, and he speaks the world of Tom, so I'm really excited about this podcast. So, Tom, thanks for joining us today. It's great to
1: be here. I, I think that's the one area of life Victor does not have good judgment, but everywhere else, he's, uh, he's incredible.
0: <laughs> starting off on a very humble note. But so you have a really interesting career story for someone running a major technology company like Everfi. Most CEOs I know did not start as state legislators. So can you tell us a bit about your background and what led you to your interest in educational issues?
1: Yeah, it is a unique background. And, you know, it's interesting. I always tell people whenever anyone says, you know, what's what's been the most shocking thing about the move from politics of being an elected official to you know, running a business. And I think it's actually how little differentiation there is between the two. You know, politics is all about kind of identifying some interesting problem or some big problem, you know, that people are dealing with and trying to figure out some policy answer and then getting a whole lot of people to get around and convince them to do that. And you have to do that by giving voice to it, applying budgets to it and dollars and spend and convening your constituents. And, having people yell at you like our boards do and everything else. So it was actually more similar than I would have thought. The genesis of Everfi though did really come out of two pretty seminal experiences when I was in the state legislature. One was I was lucky enough to be a part of wiring the schools. You know, I chaired the committee that had jurisdiction over public utilities and energy and those things which included localized cable systems and communication stuff. So Got very, very interested in the connection of rural broadband, the first wiring of schools and libraries together, building out teacher professional development systems that allowed them to get trained up on on technology. So, this was like, you know, 1994, 95, 96, 97, so pretty early in the gig. And then in my last term, worked with Governor Angus King, now Senator Angus King to do the first one-to-one laptop initiative in the country that a lot of us worked on there, but it was a fascinating effort. What it showed me was two things. You know, when you sit through what winds up being hundreds of hours of school funding formula debates on the floor of the house, which in every state pits town after town, region against region, you realize the advantages ultimately that kids who are born into the right zip code have, and that when you're born into the wrong zip code you are in pretty rough shape from a funding perspective and let alone these sidecar private foundations and others it occurred to me that there were two things one there were all these areas that were left outside the core curriculum that kids need and two there was never going to be any way to pay for it if you just relied on public funding or 501c3 nonprofit funding so you had to create kind of a a new way to go about it so that all came from listening to debates that no twenty-three-year-old should ever have to. I should have been out at bars, but I was listening to school funding formula and mill rate debates, you know, on the on the House floor. And but it, it was a life-changing experience, and really, you know, we, I went to school on it and learned a lot about it.
0: That's fascinating. And, and we definitely are familiar with people who started their careers in business, then went into politics. And it's a little unusual, less heard of the other way around, at least starting a, a company from scratch, let alone a lot of people going into consulting, but starting a company from scratch is, is very interesting. And some of these things that you worked on in the 90s because of COVID, we'll get into, are coming straight back, like equitable access to internet. Right Facebook. back working remote. Maybe let's dive into that, if you don't mind, before we go into deeper into EverFi. Like, what are some of the things that COVID has has brought out maybe in the policy wonk part of you?
1: Yeah. Well, you nailed it. Number one is there's a fundamental decision we need to make as Americans, I think. And the interesting thing, it's actually more up to the states than it is the feds, is we need to decide whether we believe access basically to the internet is something that should be deemed a public utility or not. We've not put it there. So we don't put it alongside water and sewage and sewer systems and electricity. And so it runs into a lot of the same access issues that we faced with things like renewable energy or access to, there are certain things we deem a public good. There's an interest in all of us when that is distributed equitably. And sometimes the public sector and governments have to step in to subsidize that, to enable that, to do that. And I think we as a country, what the pandemic has forced us to, I mean, in my opinion, it forces us to have this discussion and more importantly, make this decision as a country, which is, do we believe that this is an enabler of opportunity that should be equally distributed or not? What we've seen right now is the pressure. I was on with the chancellor of one of the top five largest school districts in the country yesterday morning. And we were just talking about basic, like the fact that the school system is overwhelmed with just help desk requests and how we could, you know, help as a company by potentially allocating certain hours towards, you know, just helping deal with families who have not had access in the past to the technology, have gotten the technology, been lucky enough to get technology from the district, which is not an equitable thing anyway. That's number one. And that can be funded. It can be prioritized. That's a decision the country has to make. I I know where I stand on it, but it's a policy decision that I think will be driven by the public sector pulling the private sector to that party. And then, you know, the second thing I think is that teachers, we've got to focus far more on teachers are just, I mean, it sounds like one of those cheesy things. But until you see what teachers, to call them heroes, is like, I spend so much time talking to teachers about almost everything but education technology. It's them navigating how to deliver food at kids' back doors, like a conversation I had in Mississippi recently. It's everything from food security to clothing security and everywhere in between. So we've got to figure out a way to get teachers the tools on on the human development side of the house, mental wellness, kids. I mean, people need to realize that these, these schools are... You know, they're not buildings for learning, whether we like it or not. They're buildings for kids to get their ears checked, nurses to check on them, food to be delivered, safety, a warm place. during the. I mean, it it really is for millions of students. And so this will absolutely lay all of that bare. And then we'll make a decision as a country whether we want to give the buildings and the people in them the respect that they deserve.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more on both points. And on that last point... You know, we on this podcast talk a lot about social determinants of health and how, you know, we have a reactive sick care system, not a healthcare care system. What you're pointing at is the social determinants of education, that there's so much more that goes into it, you know, access at home to internet, you know, the health of the, the child. One of the proudest partnerships we have at Osmosis is with the primary school, which is Priscilla Chan's school, which is all about how to, she's a pediatrician, as you know, mm-hmm. all about how do we get people who are under-resourced communities, kids in the K-3 to period to be as healthy as possible and get their parents trained up to make them as healthy as possible so that they can become more successful in school. So I think you've nailed both those points. Switching to EverFi, I think one does not make a company get to, you know, 43 million learners and counting thousands of customers, hundreds of employees without doing something right. So can you talk a bit about what EverFi provides for its users? How does it differ from other online learning companies? And then what is the secret to your growth? Well, next
1: time I'll know to bring the people in my company that are doing things right. I don't think you have the right guy. Yeah, it's a it's an extraordinary team. Well, we're trying to pull off something, I think, that's pretty tough, but I think because it's tough, it is so clear what's missing. And and thus, like we've been able to convene people around, you know, around this idea. The basic idea of this is. There is a missing learning layer of education in schools, and there's a range of topics, and every year there's two more that come to the fore. But whether it's teaching kids about financial wellness and financial literacy, understanding how they get trapped in credit cycles or debt cycles or by payday lenders or under mountains of student debt or, you know, we all learn these things except for the rare individual by mistake. We learn them by mistake. Like I did. I trashed my credit and people will say all the time, they're like, you must be really good at this personal finance stuff. I'm like, I'm terrible at this personal finance. Like literally the entire reason why I started the company. I'm not even, and I'm not good now, but I think like it's all the more reason that this should be a life skill that is taught at the very earliest stages. Kids should have a respect for the power of like compounding and savings and the power of getting this mindset right early on. It's something to be in awe of. And the problem is that if you don't kind of get it right early, it is one of those things that you can be a little late to the game to. if you wait, you know, until you're in your 40s or whatever to start, to start getting it right. So, We've taken that philosophy and looked out at other big you know, problems. I, I would tell you like three kind of keys to, to our model. First is give me a big, hairy, seemingly intractable kind of trillion dollar problem. So these are going to be things like student loan defaults, opioid addiction and substance abuse, sexual violence, particularly on college campuses, financial illiteracy to so go on and on. We've picked about 15 of these things can you build a course that has a fundamental basis of research around it? Can you build a course that can go into grade schools, high schools, middle schools, colleges, and the workplace to really get, you know, using all the latest and greatest technology to kind of capture students' minds and imaginations around it? And then can you get somebody else to pay for it all so that it is not a layer of cost on just so that ultimately, you know, if you're in Beverly Hills or Darien, Connecticut, you've got it. And if you're in Marks, Mississippi, you don't. So that, that was kind of the three-legged stool for us. It's been fascinating. I think the biggest thing for me, kind of intellectually, is the education system is the, the last place that has kind of welcomed innovation and kind of like private sector players. The good thing about being a former elected official is like you're voting. I've voted on something like 6,200 bills. So like there's no secret to like what I believe. I'm like a bleeding heart, you know, liberal Democrat. But I'm a bleeding heart liberal Democrat that believes deeply in the fact that in this particular space in education, the private sector has to be brought fully into the mix. And a lot of people don't agree with that because I fundamentally believe that they've taken a knee on their involvement in a way that they haven't in, in healthcare, haven't in in energy systems, haven't in, in transportation systems, and this is kind of the last open front where the private sector needs to be brought to the table because the challenge of it is this: if you focus on kids in the highest poverty areas in the country, every 30, you know, five thousand or thirty-eight thousand schools network together in you know, really some of the lowest tax rate areas in the country meaning like their ability to fund you know, education and the funding formula around schools, we have to be able to have a mechanism that it's taken us 400 years to basically disadvantage kids to such a disastrous level that we have in those communities. So you've got to, you've got to bring the bazooka to this thing. So that is what we're trying to do with the private sector
0: model. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I love how you've summarized the, the three stools upon which the Everfi model sits. You know, this year, obviously, you guys announced the $100 million of funding for courses about racial injustice and economic inequality. Can you talk a bit about some of that? Like, how do you go from that intractable large problem to an evidence-based course? And then how do you measure success based on that?
1: Yeah, it's a little different in each of the categories. Back to like our commitment to this thing. I mean, we really have kind of been in this all along. It's interesting. Seven years ago, we built what was really the first scaled and kind of in African-American history course, a course called 306, because we, we knew that that gap that existed for a sense of self and deep respect for the journey of Black Americans in this country was just totally missing from the school day. And no one knew, you know, why we were doing it or it was so random. It was kind of like the second thing we did after financial literacy. But whether it's, you know, we built this really incredible course on compassion with Jeff Wiener, who just left as CEO of LinkedIn. Jeff really wanted to have a course that taught kids the definition of compassion how that relates to our African-American history course, how that relates to a course on families, financial security or student mental wellness. They're all intrinsically tied. And, And what happens is when they, they become this cascading chorus of like oppression on kids when they're not learned. And when they are learned together, they become this beautiful, you know, chorus of opportunity for kids, but you can't just do one, you know, you've got to build this. So we needed to accelerate the builds of other things that tied to this. And so the only way we knew to do that was to like accelerate our product, you know, build so that we weren't waiting five years to build the course on mental wellness, you know, basics for kids in schools or compassion or whatever it might be. But we've always had the lens that everybody gets to start with kind of their why. I wanted to start in communities always that I felt were not just left behind, but way left behind. They were the small rural communities in many parts of the South. They were Native American reservations and others. They were the first communities we stepped into in 2008 and early 2009. And, you know, we remain today. So that was the, you know, the goal was to kind of accelerate the product timeline so we can move things faster and bring the private sector along to match it.
0: That makes a lot of sense. you know, you guys announced a lot of this stuff this year. I would love to hear more about how COVID has changed. In the media, we've heard a lot about how COVID has changed the education system as a whole. And what are some of the lasting changes that will come from that? Like ed tech is here to stay, just like telemedicine is here to stay for a lot of, for a lot of healthcare. How has COVID affected EverFi?
1: I don't know enough other, about other spaces to know the correlations between certain things. But I will tell you this, the education space is such a tough one because... It's all hyper localized. And, and I, I tend to make these like definitive, right or wrong, never in doubt statements, which is like one of those things I tell people I'm 100% right, you know, 47% of the time, which is the, you know, the from the Will Ferrell movie, Anchorman, I think it was. Sorry. But I feel very strongly that education will never not be a local control issue in this country. So you got to kind of like deal with what it is today, which is that. In Mississippi or Iowa, you have hundreds and hundreds of school districts, all making their unique budgeting, curriculum standardization, and standard requirements. Sometimes states will do things, but but the whipsaw effect of policy, and this kind of goes back to my political days, is, and I'm going to tie it back to to the private sector and why it's so important, particularly in COVID right now, is that. If you think about just in the last 10 years, you've had or 12 years or whatever it might be, if governors come and go, mayors come and go, presidents coming and go, so you have no child left behind, race to the top, you know, you'll have whatever president-elect Biden decides to do. And they're all important and they all matter. And you may not agree to them, but they're all also very fleeting. And so building, I've always thought of EverFi as something that could potentially be the most consistent thing that teachers can have in their lives. Number one, it's at no cost because we get someone else to pay for it. So there's never any budget yo-yoing. And number two is it's not predicated on any presidential administration or anything else. When COVID hit, I think what it did when the paddles like literally went on the education patient across the country and it shocked all of our systems, coast to coast was that number one, the insurance policy of remote learning needing to be there whether it's a pandemic or a cyber attack that shuts down a district or like there's contingency for all of these things and they happen. And, and sometimes it's the, it's the heartbreak of a school shooting or whatever it might be that shuts a district down for you know weeks or days or could potentially be months on end. In some cases we've seen this now, we would have never guessed this. So having access to like, real and structured and prepared remote learning plans is never going, I don't think it's ever going away. One of the things that I feel really strongly is people say, wow, this must be a great time to be in an ed tech company. And I say, well, I wouldn't want to be an ed tech company that was selling the school districts because the education budgets are about to get, you know, it's going to be a really tough year next year on the biennial budget cycles and everything. So I think what it's done for me is, it's given me urgency that we've got, that we as EverFi, it's totally self-serving in some ways, but, it's, but it is more like we've got to figure out how to put more things in play because I feel like it's going to wind up that districts who, who realize they need these really meaty learning plans aren't going to be, remote learning plans and access to ed tech aren't going to be able to afford it. And that bums me out. And I think we got to, you know, it's one more thing in addition to connectivity that we're going to have to figure out.
0: Absolutely. So I know we're coming up on time, and I want to be respectful. So I had two other questions for you. The first is, you know, at Osmosis, we have an audience of millions of current and future healthcare professionals, and we've all heard about the Fauci effect, where there's increased number of applications to medical schools, and we, we see that in nursing and PA and pharmacy and other, other health professions as well. What's your advice to people considering a career in healthcare about meeting the challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic and, and beyond? First of all, it, it's one of the and <laughs>
1: just hearing you say that, and I've read that whether it's the Fauci effect or anything else, it it, it is so wonderful to hear and one of the few bright spots of the year that this will have that kind of effect. But I think the biggest thing is it would be more like an ask that I would have for health professionals as it relates to the buildings you know that sit on the corners in their neighborhoods and stuff that kids go to school at every day and. What I would say is like the numbers, it's a very unfair fight. And kids' access to basic healthcare, mental health services, when you think about specialists and and kids who find themselves on the on the spectrum or or special needs, like I <sighs> We need these numbers when you go into schools, you say, how many speech pathologists do you have per, and they're like, oh, one to 750, or how many counselors do you have, one to, you know, 450. It's a very unfair fight. And so I've always wondered, like, is there a creative way that we can get, you know, more resources, some kind of interesting health core that is designed to go kind of make that less of an unfair fight? along the way. Because I think like this whole child thing is the real deal. Folks who tend to crop dust education and and come in and say, oh, teachers need to do more. And these, you know, really basic like looks at things or teachers are the problem or whatever are missing the entire boat, like the entire boat. And so the more that we can have healthcare professionals who we're able and lucky enough to kind of get integrated into the school day and around kids, I think the better. And so if that could be something that came out of this pandemic, that would be a real you know, gift to the world.
0: Yeah, I love that. We've also had recent guests from Hazel Health on the Raiseline podcast, and they're all about how do we bring telehealth to school districts, as well as what the primary school is doing. I love the idea of a care core. We've talked a lot about that on Osmosis as well, where 60,000 people apply to med schools in the US every year, but only 25,000 people get into MD and DO programs. A lot of the people who don't get in, they you know wind up taking lab jobs and reapplying or they shadow at a hospital health system. But those people, just like TFA, Teach for America, as you know well, could be a very robust set of highly motivated, intellectually stimulated people who could be part of the care core and they could, you know, spend a just like TFA, but uh, care for America or something along those lines. And it's a, definitely an idea we've been playing around a lot with. So we'd love to chat with you about that at some point. My last question for you is, is there anything else you'd like our audience to know about yourself, Everfy, or anything else, education, healthcare policy that we haven't covered?
1: Yeah, if I had to say kind of my big takeaway from, you know, from this year is, is that technology has enabled us, you know, it's so funny, I'm we're working on a really important project right now around building kind of networks and mentors around kids in high poverty areas and stuff. And and I remember the biggest thing that I, a year ago, we were just debating, we were like, how in the world would you ever get people on a Zoom? We started at EverFi, we started Zooming NFL players. We run a really big initiative with the NFL on on bullying and character and, and certain things. And so we were Dropping in NFL players and it would, it was just this. It would, there would be, you know, 15, 20 kids on a Zoom and you'd have a great, you know, Carson Wentz or somebody would be on, on. And we were like, wow, I wonder if you could ever get people's minds around the fact that they could, you know, zoom into classrooms or do things like that. And, and now we've had this multi trillion dollar conditioning of the market to, uh, to enable that to happen. And I think that's a, it's needless to say a fundamental see change where it's a two-way street where you as a young you know doctor physician or mental health expert now there's nothing stopping you both from a mindset and technology from influencing the lives and checking in and then building a network of kids across countries nothing stopping you anymore i told someone the other day i was talking to a group fortune 500 ceos and you know, I just said, I was like, listen, this is just, in our case, this missing learning layer, you know, financial literacy, college readiness, compassion, like whatever it might be. It's not like I mapped the human genome here. Like this is fully actionable. It can be in every school tomorrow. It's absolutely like affordable, not that hard to do. Like, it's just a decision, you know, this is just a decision. So I'm kind of of the belief that If 200 doctors want to get together in a certain area and influence the lives of kids in a school district and create a network that allows them access to that, it's doable, it's actionable. It can happen tomorrow. It's cheap. It doesn't cost anything. Someone will pay for it and it's desperately needed. I kind of put that lens on things now where I'm like, what's actionable and what's important? And when those two things come together, you kind of owe it to yourself to take a swing at it. And so that's a real benefit of coming out of this, this concept of networking kids in the Mississippi Delta together with people in Washington, D.C. It's not hard anymore. And we need to lean into that because um, what will come of that organically is going to be incredible. So
0: that's a really excellent point and a good one to end on. So, Tom, I'd like to thank you for not only taking the time to be with us today on the Raiseline podcast, but obviously for the important work that you and your team at Everfire are doing to educate the next generation. It's great. It's wonderful to be here. I appreciate it. And with that, I'm Sheva Glani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise line since we're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels.